We're back in Ephesians chapter number 6 today. We'll begin in verse 5 momentarily. We've been looking at Christian lifestyle in this center part of the book of Ephesians. And core to that is found in chapter 5, verse 21, that we should all submit to one another, that is to fellow Christians, fellow human beings. We all submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. So it's all about Jesus. Everything we do in word, in deed, we do all to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so here we are being reminded that husbands and wives are submitting to each other because they're part of a team that answers to Jesus Christ, that tries to represent Jesus Christ. The family unit, the husband and wife unit, they're a partnership. Now, because partners don't always agree in procedure, there is a team leader, and that is the husband. And so the wife needs to submit to the husband when those disagreements arise, which should be infrequent in a Christian family, because they should already be on the same page with most decisions. But the husband's attitude in the midst of that team leadership is to be one of love, one of godlike love, sacrificial love, the love which does whatever it takes to help the other person out regardless of the cost. So when you've got a team leader like that in the family, it's really so much easier for the wife to show respect and submission to that sort of husband. And then that leadership team is supposed to be leading the kids that come along. And so children are supposed to be obeying their parents. Specifically, the the husband is named the father because he's the team leader. But the children are to obey the commands of the parents uh, and to honor those parents because the parents are supposed to be looking out for their children on behalf of Jesus Christ. And so things will go better for kids in a family that is looking out for them. And then the husbands, the fathers, and it's actually true of moms too, are supposed to be looking out for the kids and not just bullying them, not just pushing around, not just making them angry, you know, making rules that make no sense. Um, Parents need to be raising their kids to love Jesus Christ, love the church, love the scripture, and want to do things God's way. And moms and dads model Jesus Christ to their kids. And so we want good parents to set a good example for their kids. And then the next relationship that came up in the passage was the slave-master relationship. And remember, back at this time, uh, this was not the product of kidnapping. 
like it was in our colonial period, uh, where so many of the slaves of uh, the southern United States were ripped out of their country, out of their homes, and brought here uh, in a way that by biblical standards would have been punishable by death, kidnapping and enslavement of people uh, for no reason but finance uh, was immoral uh, according to Bible standards. So what happened uh, with the African slave trade, it's not anything like the scriptural slavery that we're referencing today. And uh, by the way, even after they were brought here, and, uh, and the, the next generation hadn't been kidnapped. Uh, they were breeding them like animals, which showed an utter disregard for God's presence in those people. Remember, all these folks were made in the image and likeness of God. And so uh, even that part of the slave trade, uh, even that part of American slavery was an atrocity against the Word of God. And uh, a shame is upon all of those Christians that tried to excuse that. And most certainly there is shame upon any modern-day people that try to excuse what happened in early American history because it is not by any stretch of the imagination related to what we're reading today about slaves and masters. Uh, Most of this stuff was brought about because of financial uh, situations, including financial situations that followed battles and times of war, uh, where people were sold into slavery as a mechanism of paying war debt from one country to another. All right, so... Uh, in this passage in front of us, we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Paul addresses some of these people who are caught up in slavery, no doubt trying to get themselves out of it, if at all possible. Uh, Paul says, this is your responsibility as a Christian now. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So, Be a good slave. Uh, In our modern-day equivalent, it's not perfectly equivalent, but it comes along the principles. We're talking about employees. uh, To do your job for Jesus Christ. Verse 6, not by the way of eye service, that is, you know, just putting on a show uh, when they're keeping an eye on you. Uh, Not as people pleasers, but as true servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. See, your job might involve scrubbing floors. Scrub that floor for Jesus. Your job might involve teaching children. Teach those children for Jesus. Your job might involve directing traffic. Direct that traffic for Jesus. See, that's what he's saying here. Whatever your responsibility is, you do it, not for your boss, even though they're going to get the benefit from this. You do it for Jesus. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord 
and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. See, slaves and freed people were both people. Slaves and free people started out as sinners, and they needed a Savior. And so everybody is equal before God. And Paul says, all of you need to keep that in mind, that God is going to respond to you not based on your economic situation, not based on your freedom or slavery situation. It's going to be based on your relationship with Jesus Christ and what you've been doing for Jesus. Now, verse 9 is where we pick up and finish on this particular topic today by turning our attention to the masters. Masters, do the same to them. Meaning, you treat them as if they're Jesus. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So master's responsibility, Christian master's responsibility, was to treat the slave in their household with respect, with human dignity, to realize that Jesus Christ died for that person just like he died for me. Jesus wants to spend eternity with that person just like he wants to spend eternity with me. And it doesn't matter that that guy, that woman, ended up owing so much that they went into slavery. Jesus Christ paid the price for their sin, just like he paid the price for my sin. And that makes me their brother, their sister in Christ. And uh, God looks at both of us the same way, through the lens of Jesus as our Savior. So when uh, masters have um, interactions with their slaves, they don't push them around, boss them around, threaten them with all sorts of physical punishment. They simply treat them with dignity. You know, if you've got problems, that has to be worked out. And the same is going to be true with the principle of employers and employees. Employers need to love their employees. They need to do what is best for their employees. They need to look out for the health and security and welfare of their employees. And I, I bless and brag on all you Christian employers out there that that's exactly how you treat your, your employers, or your employees, as if they're your own kids, as if they're your own brothers and sisters, because that's exactly who they are in Jesus Christ, and good on you for doing that. Now, before we leave this section, I want to remind you, we will be back and hit on all these topics again in just a matter of days, because this letter is just the framework that Paul uses to write his next letter, which is addressed to the people at Colossae. And he goes back over these exact same things again. 
And so we will have it all reinforced uh, very shortly uh, because it's important uh, that all of us know we are supposed to be submitting to one another out of respect for Jesus Christ. The next section is quite well known within the church, and it is the section dealing with the armor of God. And it has been uh, quite common uh, that through the years, through the centuries, uh, that people suggested that the Apostle Paul is sitting there in his apartment or his house chained up to a Roman soldier in full dress uniform, and he's looking over the pieces of that uniform and says, you know what, I think I can write an analogy uh, that uses uh, all of these armor pieces. Uh, and then he does it. And that's how most people look at this. And <laughs> I can appreciate where people might think it could happen that way, but I want you to know as we delve into this, that is most certainly not how it happened. Uh, it has come to my attention in my studies uh, that uh, the Roman uh, Praetorian Guard, which is the guard that provides security in the palace of Nero Caesar, he's the, the emperor at this time, uh, and uh, also provides security throughout the city of Rome, did not wear uniforms inside the walls of the city. They wore civilian dress. And you can appreciate uh, that the reason for this is because the Roman people did not want to have the impression that they were under military occupation. Uh, the Roman um, army members... Uh, that were stationed at the, uh, uh, the headquarters just outside the walls, uh, they would patrol in other parts of Italy in battle uniform. But inside the city, they wore civilian dress. And so I, I'm afraid that that probably blows your imagination of the Apostle Paul writing this, but that's just the way it's going to have to be because the Praetorian Guard provided the security details for all people awaiting imperial review. So um, Paul is chained up to a guy in civilian dress, perhaps even in a nice toga. Now, he does have a sword on, that's true, uh, but other than that, he just looks like a civilian. Uh, the real source of this armor of God is from the Old Testament writings. Uh, Paul has memorized, as a good Jewish person would, many sections of the Old Testament. And so he, he delves into that memory um, treasure and says, this is how we ought to be dressed uh, for the service we're involved in. So, with all that as our background, let's look at the text itself. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally. So he's, he's starting to wind down in his letter. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
so we are to take God's strength upon ourselves. That's going to be part of understanding that this armor started out being worn by God himself. This is the armor of Jesus Christ that he wore, uh, you know, symbolically speaking, in order to accomplish our salvation. Jesus was a hero who came, who was inserted into our world uh, as a fighter on our behalf. And once he was finished, he handed his uniform, his armor, over to us to keep that fight going uh, for the souls of other people. And so we all, as Christians, need to be strong in the Lord. We need to have his same strength, his same ability to get the job done for other people. So put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So Satan is the ancient enemy. He is that great serpent that caused the trouble back in Genesis chapter number 3 when he brought temptation uh, into the lives of our foreparents, uh, Eve and Adam. Uh, And he's been causing trouble ever since then. Uh, He does not like us. Uh, All the evidence, I think, uh, lends itself to the idea that Satan... Uh, did not like the idea that we were made in the image and likeness of God, which he was not. He was an angel. Uh, All angels were made as servants of God for the benefit of humanity made in the image of God. And it could be that at some point, because there's some passages of Scripture that seem to indicate this, uh, God instructed the angels, you will treat Adam and Eve just like you treat me. You will show them reverence and worship and honor just like you do toward me. And it would appear that Satan did not like that idea. Uh, he, again, this a little bit of this is speculation, but I think there's good basis in Scripture for it. It seems that he considered himself better than any of us. Uh, we are flesh and blood. He is a magnificent being uh, that is uh, pan-dimensional. Uh, he is uh, able to move between dimensions, between the spirit world and the physical world. And so he didn't like us from the very beginning. And because of that, he drove a wedge between Adam and Eve and God and has been driving that same wedge over and over again between all the descendants of Adam and Eve and God. And so those are the schemes of the devil, his battle plans, his methodology. It's actually, that's the word in Greek, is methodos. So it's the methodologies, the plans to screw up the relationship between us 
and the one in whose image we were made. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So our struggle, this battle that we find ourselves in, it really isn't against other human beings. I know sometimes it feels like it is. I mean, all the wars that are going on, all the conflicts that are going on, it's humans fighting humans. I know that. But it's not really what's going on. Behind the scenes are the puppet masters that are pulling strings and uh, making uh, things appear as if humans need to fight against humans. And so we Christians are supposed to have our blinders off. We're supposed to be able to see the reality. And so Paul says that. He says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. This is not us against human beings, but against the rulers, the archons, if you will, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What he's just described are not human governments. These are angelic troublemakers. Uh, We know that Satan, as we know him, that's his Hebrew name, which means adversary. Uh, His original Hebrew name uh, seems to have been Halel, which has to do with being brilliant in um, light and sound. But anyway, uh, he's not the only one that started causing trouble between humans and God. Uh, According to Revelation chapter 12's uh, symbolism, it seems that as much as one-third, you know, a significant minority of the angelic service personnel, that is, uh, supernatural beings that were created to carry out um, service for humanity, uh, as much as a third of them also did not like uh, us, did not like uh, the fact that they were better than us. And so they rebelled. They were the third of the stars that were pulled down by the dragon's tails. Stars are often a symbol, a poetic symbol for angels. Uh, so we're talking about a lot of these guys, and they are organized. They have tiered structures in order to, to, have, to get their, their schemes done. And these are the spiritual forces of evil that exist in the heavenly places. Now, often when we hear the word heaven, we think of where God is. But there are some places, and this is one of them, that heaven represents the unseen world, the spirit dimension, where these entities spend the vast majority of their time. And so we are at war not with our fellow human beings. Our real war is with the puppet masters behind them, these troublemakers in the unseen world that are trying to 
trying to cause us all eternal grief and uh, get us uh, broken away from the Creator God. Once we understand that, Paul says, then you will understand that you have a need for Jesus' armor. So verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So let's not get this thing piecemeal. We've got to get it all. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now, we were reading earlier in chapter 5, verse 16, uh, that we're living in evil days. Uh, And each day, um, we're facing new challenges, right? And so, the challenge that's in front of us is the one we have to tackle. And Paul says, you need to be covered in Jesus' armor if you're going to do that. Because you want, when all the dust settles, when everything is said and done, you want to be found standing firm, unmoved against the schemes of the other side. And then we start having the description uh, from the Old Testament. And this is where you're going to need to have opportunity to flip to particularly the book of Isaiah, but I think we've got some in the Psalms as well, uh, to see what is it that Paul is either quoting from or alluding to. And so here's your first example of that. Verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And when we go to the book of Isaiah, which is where we will camp out a little bit uh, at the beginning of next session, we go to chapter number 11, and we see here a messianic passage about the shoot springing up from the stem of Jesse, this branch from the roots of Uh, And this is all about the Messiah and how the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him and the delight of the Lord is going to be on him. Well, he's the one that we are told is going to come and judge the world. He is the one that is going to uh, strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's verse number 4 of Isaiah chapter 11, which is, by the way, quoted in... Uh, in the book of Revelation. And then it starts describing how he's dressed in verse number 5. So I want to give you an assignment. Read chapter 11 and come back tomorrow, and let's get back into God's inspired word.